Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, Today we are talking about um, the state of play, the games we've played over the weekend. I want to reiterate um, some thoughts I had before about uh, how muscle confusion in the DM brain can be beneficial um, by running different types of games. It can lead to some good cross-pollination across the things. But I also want to talk about how, you know, to, I guess, reiterate how, um, you know, right tool for the right job is is very important when you're selecting your role-playing games. Uh, And uh, part of that relates to my state of play update because we had a really, really terrific session of uh, Masks, the new generation, or next generation, next generation, new generation, Uh, the uh, game published by Magpie Games where you play... um, uh, teenage superheroes. So, I also want to uh, say a little quick word about um, uh, pandemic gaming, I guess, as well, too, just uh, because the um, there's a lot of folks who are making a transition from their tabletop uh, games into the um, uh, the online environment. And I mean, almost all of my games are, uh, uh, with the like rare exception of the one, uh, the odd game I have here and there. Uh, are are all online nowadays too? So I thought I thought I'd maybe say a quick word about that as well. So that's what we're in for for this episode. Let's get to the episode. So let's first start with the state of play. So the state of play this past week, we've I actually had um, five sessions. Geez, this uh, this past week, I had two sessions of our Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition campaign, playing through Carl Sargent's classic Night Below campaign. I had. One session of our uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea uh, campaign, Reavers of Tula, and I had uh, one session of our the uh, new the Masks uh, new generation game that I mentioned at the uh, in the intro. Uh, that was with my son and uh, with one of my buddies, uh, and then I also had a uh, chapter two or session two of our campaign playing. The Dracula dossier, Pelgrim presses Dracula dossier products using the uh, cult divinity lost um, rule set. And all of them were great. Like, all of them were really, really good. It was a really great week of, uh, of gaming. Um, and the Wednesday, I'm trying to think here. So, the Wednesday session uh, was a. Oh, gosh, I'm, you know, it, it's amazing how fast my, my brain forgets what's happening. So I actually had to go back and take a look at the episode to remember what happened. Um, but uh, what, what happened was on uh, Wednesday, we uh, we actually had, we expected to have a, be down a, a fair amount of people. And uh, of the eight players who, uh, who played in that campaign, we actually had six show up. And the um, where we had left things in the previous session was a bit of a cliffhanger with one of sorry one of the players gonna, who was going to die in ten minutes, uh, and then another player who was going to die within the day uh, if either didn't get magical healing. And fortunately, we had both clerics show up, and they were able to to get the characters back up. And as a testament to how fucking badass determined my my players are. Rather than retreating after that uh, shellacking that they got from the um, this bugbear and his traps and, and whatnot, too, they decided to press on and they uh, began exploring the, the basement, uh, the first I guess sub level of this thing, the first um, a- area. And as a, I refer, if you haven't um, been following the campaign either on 
uh, YouTube or on uh, in my little uh, state of play updates here, uh, the characters have been exploring this goblin warren in uh, uh, the, this place called the uh, Patchwork Hills, where they uh, they've been investigating this uh, flood. There's been this the serious flooding of the uh, of the region uh, over the past two years, uh, and they don't know what's caused this, and it's caused the loss of a bunch of farmland. So the heroes have got, been hired by the local potentate to go and find out what the hell's causing this. They are doing that right now. And um, what they have, uh, they, they have not uncovered the cause of the flooding just yet, but they have been, um, yeah, they've been discovering how much, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, they have been discovering just how many darn goblins there are in here. And they've killed... Uh, gosh, like close to 35 or 40 goblins at this point. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a whole, um, basically like a whole warren's worth. And, you know, as an aside, this is one of the things I just love about old school play is that you can, you know, I mean, I can credibly believe that in these, um, you know, in this kind of, uh, fictional world that, that the warrens where the goblins live is probably, you know, it's not going to be a, uh, a bite-sized encounter. It's going to be a bunch of, uh, goblins, you know, 40, 50, 60 goblins living in a community. Uh, and in this game, in, the, in this game, we can model that stuff and have these big encounters where they're facing like 10 goblins at a time without really worrying about it, um, either slowing down play too much or it, uh, kicking the shit out of the players just by virtue of the, uh, of the math. I mean, obviously, they're they're you know fighting more things means more targets means more opportunities for damage. So like it, it is a, a definitely more uh, challenging encounter. But I mean, it's just really fun. Like it really feels like a big epic thing when they're facing quite you know so many uh, adversaries at the same time. Uh, but anyway, enough praising of uh, AD and D second. Um, what um, so what they did? Uh, they fought the goblins. Uh, they forced the bugbear to retreat a second time uh, in deeper into the chamber. They discovered that there was this chapel. Uh, they had previously discovered that uh, there were some ancient uh, holy symbols to uh, two elven gods, Korlon Lorathian, the kind of like chief god or head god of, uh, what do you call it, of uh, the elven pantheon, and uh, a god named Shevarash, who is a, called, the, I think, the Black Archer or the Black Arrow, who is the enemy of uh, the drow, basically. He's the watcher at the cavern. So the they found a symbol that was sort of a, an in, co-mingling of those two symbols, the broken arrow with blood coming down from Shevarash and the crescent uh, moon of Corallon Lorethian. Uh, however, from within there, they heard the sound of howls, these uh, unearthly howls of dogs and the snapping and snarling. And this is an, yet another example of the dog sort of motif that they keep encountering in relation to this place, and uh, they, yeah, um, they pretty much everyone other than one of the uh, clerics failed their uh, save versus spell, and every single one of them ran out of the warren. Uh, the the, the uh, magical fear gripped them, and they all went racing out until they were uh, seeing daylight, and. Uh, that's where we left things after Wednesday, and then on Friday, we had a much smaller crew. We only had uh, three or four players. Three players, I think. Uh, for one player was kind of fluctuating, but it... Uh, yeah, I mean, knowing they were down so many players and knowing how hurt they were, the guys kind of like took stock of, of what they were going to do, and um, what they elected to do is actually make their way back to town to get some training done. 
because in um, in that campaign we are using the optional uh, downtime training rules from uh, ADD second although we're making some modifications uh, um, rules as written in the uh, second edition AD and D uh, DNG, there is, um, you know, there's, there's rules for training, which were present in the first edition. And they, the, the prices and the time that you have to spend for training in those is just, it makes no sense. Like it, it's just in, um, you know, if you're running a, uh, first edition ADD or ADD second with optional rules, you're going to gain XP from treasure. And just the amount of treasure you would be required to get that would, greatly exceed, you know, the, you'd be gaining multiple levels, although rules is written, you can't gain more than one level at a time, so it just seems like it's, it didn't make any sense, so we, I've, uh, I've house-ruled some new versions of it, of what's required, and I've also to encourage more interaction with the NPCs, I've, I've encouraged, um, that, it, or I uh, said that if the players can, um, either, like, you know, complete a task for the, for each of the, um, each of their trainers, uh, or if they can find some other way to suggest one, like I've given each of the trainers they've met so far has one task that they want to perform. And if they uh, perform it, then the players get half price on their training. Um, if they, uh, they can also, you know, seek out uh, different trainers who may have different, uh, tasks for them, or they may seek out, uh, what do you call it? So they may seek out, uh, or propose different, um, jobs for them too, which uh, is sort of what they did in the Friday session. Friday, they got back and they quickly realized they they actually, um, if they did have enough money to, to complete their training, um, in one profession, the characters who were multi-classed, who were able to level up two classes, they actually didn't have enough. So, um, what they ended up doing is entering into a bit of negotiation with their patron. And what he decided to do is because of their, uh, the success they had seen, uh, thus far with, with dealing with the goblins, uh, even though they hadn't identified the marsh and because their plan was to go right back and, and deal with it. And because they turned over this, uh, seemingly master craft and, oh, no, actually not seemingly, they knew it was magical because they cast detect magic, this magical like polearm head, uh, over to him, um, he agreed to call in favors with some of the trainers and uh, they are going to get a half price deal. So he advanced half of their payment for the job uh, that they had yet to complete, which helped um, get everyone up to the point where they could afford training. Um, and then we did some, um, you know, they did two weeks worth of downtime uh, training, which pushed us all the way through past the Midsummer Festival and to the point where the characters are now... Um, uh, completing the, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, they've completed their training. Uh, they, we will be doing two more weeks of downtime, uh, training. Uh, when they go to another place, they have to go to, to travel to a different town to, uh, to finish the wizard training because the, there's no wizard where they are currently. Um, but it's a fun session, you know? I mean, it was, uh, the session was, it was another one of those ones where they were trying to you know, um, they were, I guess, dealing with the consequences of the passage of time. What they didn't, what they did is they, they had tied up their mule with all their, they had previously created, got the local artisan to create, or crow or a carpenter to create these like portable redoubts. They wanted to have kind of like, you know, portable shields to be able to protect themselves from goblin fire. And, um, they, they were so heavy, uh, that they, uh, purchased a, a mule and they strapped that shit to a mule and then just brought that thing out into the hills 
and uh, ra- where they had left the the mule was tied up in this canyon. And I mean, like they'd already had some random encounters in those canyons, so they you know should have known that there was the threat of uh, things. Uh, yeah, th- the threat of things attacking their mule. But then they ended up having to take a overnight in the uh, in the the stronghold at uh, Heathertop Warren anyway. Uh, and they didn't, I don't think they thought of the mule, but because we're keeping track of the time on the calendar, you know, I rolled random encounters for that day for the mule, and sure enough, uh, there's a mountain lion that's very well fed now, uh, full of mule at the player's expense, so the players found that their mule was, was gone, and, um, they, uh, hiked their way back, what is this guy doing? They hiked their way back to, uh, Milbourne with, uh, to their, like, hometown, or their, at least their base of operations without, well, with one attack, they had, they did face one mountain lion, and we had a really scary uh, moment where, uh, like, we were one dice roll away from killing a, uh, or potentially killing one of the, uh, uh, one of the party members, because it, um, yeah, oof, it could have, a roll could have certainly done enough to take this one character down, or, or, like, severely wound him, and it was interesting, because we had no fight, we had no healers, we had no healing potions, um, what the characters were faced with was if a character goes down, they could stabilize them, but they would have to heal on their own, which meant that the roll on the mortal wounds table that we're using, like you, it, it the results, you make a dice roll of a d20, you know, there's modifiers we add to it, and and then um, we also, there's an axis on the d6 that we use to, to determine what specific injuries, but the severity of it is really dictated by the d20 roll, and one of the substantial modifiers that applies is how fast it is before you get treatment. And, like, you know, getting mauled by a mountain lion in the middle of, um, in the, middle of the wilderness uh, definitely would have been a bad, you know, a bad situation for, uh, for the that particular player and, and the mortal wounds roll would have been quite bad. So it was, uh, yeah, it was exciting. Uh, fortunately he, he uh, his, uh, armor or his uh, magical armor spell, uh, sucked up the damage from that where I'm using optional rules to, uh, to give certain, uh, armors and, uh, the armor spell gives a, a little bit of DR, uh, damage resistance. And yeah, they were able to make it way way back. So it was fun. I mean, it was a really fun session and it was cool seeing the, like, um, because the, those three players, I would have thought that, you know, because we were, we've been so used to playing with between six and eight players the last little while, we thought like, oh yeah, you know, it'll be a big group. And, um, they're, they're with a small group, I mean, I'm not sure we can actually run this, but it was awesome. You know, it was really, really great. And, uh, the fact that, you know, we all still rolling the same random encounters and, and so forth. Like it, I think it added to the tension, uh, of the, of the session. And it, uh, it certainly made for a really, a really fun, uh, encounter, you know, real change. Like when, when the players, and I don't think that they've been feeling necessarily like they've been, you know, they've, they've been superheroes or anything like that. Like they're, it's been a, a challenging, uh, campaign for the players, uh, already, but, uh, yeah, that, that was a particularly fun session. It also gave, uh, some of those heroes an opportunity to really shine as, um, you know, as, uh, uh, as individual heroes too, being pushed out of their normal roles into something that was maybe a little less, uh, in their comfort zone too. Like the, uh, at the time, the character who had the most hit points was actually our thief illusionist <laughs> as opposed to the fighter 
and the um, Fighter Thief who were in the party. So it's pretty cool. Characters leveled up. We rolled some XP. Uh, everyone got to, because we had a bunch of characters hit level 3, we had new proficiencies. So people have new skills, and it was interesting to see what skills they picked as well. Um, some picked some uh, skills that were, you know, beneficial for their, for what they've experienced. Actually, that's not true. All of them picked something that, that uh, related to sort of what they had experienced to date. Like the, the events of the, uh, of the campaign uh, drove the, uh, their decisions. And that's exactly what I love to see is, is organic growth of the characters, characters that grow in, in relation to the campaign, as opposed to characters that are just... Uh, you know, um, picking, uh, what do you call it? Uh, characters that are just min-maxing or were built, you know, from the, from the, uh, ground up, uh, at first level. And it, it's particularly cool that, um, I mean, that's an, another thing I just love about this particular campaign. And so that's, um, that's where things stand with our AD and D campaign. We're back. Uh, characters are in the midst of, uh, uh, re-equipping, uh, rebuilding and yeah, it, it's, um, and I think they're going to be eager to go back and lay the smack down at, with another level under their belt. Um, and, yeah, and see what they can do in uh, about clearing out Heathertop Warren. And, again, like, it's just been, man, like, what a, what a really fun uh, campaign this has been. Uh, going back to AD&D, uh, as opposed to our uh, Pathfinder 2 uh, campaign, the, the Barrel Maze one, um, this feels like a much better fit for system and what I was expecting uh, and the rotating cast is is working really really well um, we've got like I said about eight regular players who play in the campaign and the yeah the, the attendance has been really really good even in spite of this you know the current um, uh, pandemic uh, concerns and uh, the system has, has been terrifically robust, you know, like it's, um, I've not had to rebalance any encounters or any shit like that. Like it's just been, it's been a really, really fun, uh, game to, to see evolve as we go. So, and, and, and that's not to say that there's anything, I, I don't mean to criticize Pathfinder 2. I, I, um, my enthusiasm for that game is back on its, uh, you know, on top, not only because of a really good session last weekend with our Pathfinder Innistrad game, um, but also because our, uh, my copy of the Game Mastery Guide finally showed up, and, and I've, oh, it's, there's so many good ideas in there. Um, and it's, again, it's not—it's—it's it's good to be, you know, to have both those games running at the same time. It's really good to to, to remember uh, that, you know, using the right tool for the right job is really critical. Uh, for, you know, because you got to know what kind of campaign that you want to actually be running and what experience you want at the table in order to. Uh, properly judge what what system you know what game would be doing best for them, and that's going to be kind of the theme for this particular episode because uh, I will talk about that uh, in yeah I'm going to talk about that uh, especially when I talk about masks and um, cult. But anyway, um, I also plan so the, the I'm now that the um, pandemic is going to have the happy excuse to work from home for uh, more often. I am planning on finally getting my. Uh, I've been planning to do a uh, AD&D second edition kind of overview review uh, thing for the channel. And uh, I've just been figuring out specifically how, I mean, first off, trying to find time to do this, but also to figure out the the approach I want to take on it and uh, the things I want to make sure to hit. Because I think one of the, the things um, oh, that I, I, you know, uh, it's easy to look at 
I think that's the way that sometimes um, some old school players think is how I mean, you know, that running stuff rules is written. You know, like particularly AD and D first edition uh, players. I think house ruling is a critical and and really really important part of the OSR kind of scene, right? Is is being able to mix and match and make the games what you want. It's certainly something that distinguishes it from, you know, like say the Pathfinder first edition play where the expectation is that um, you're going to run rules as written or you're going to have clearly articulated house rules so that the players when they're making their characters can um, can make the characters in light of those rules. Um, however, uh, I, I really do love that ADD second uh, even from the, the the core rule books, really incorporates so many options. Like it really does, you know, if you want to use critical hits, use this. You know, if you want to use death, you know, um, hovering at death's door rules, uh, that's those are technically optional. Rules is written, you die when you hit zero hit points. Um, the, uh, gosh, what are other optional rules? I, so I don't use the critical hits in my game because I, I just don't... Um, um, they don't suit the, the style of play. I, I want no critical hits on players and I want no critical hits by players either. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's just the, the, I've decided for this campaign. I do use crits in, uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really like how much, uh, AD&D Second is, it really is a modular kind of game. So it's it not only, it kind of like codifies that idea of of house ruling and that's i think the approach that i'm going to to take to it you know like it's um i've had a couple of times on on a couple of reviews when i've said like oh i do this and i make this change i make that change i've had people who have commented on like well you know if rules is written it's broken then that's not a then that's a problem with the game and i just don't see that like if if your house ruling it's you're making it to suit your own sensibilities right like your own what you what you think is the best way to be playing that game. And um, depending on your group, you may want to, you know, make sure everyone is is on board with that. Or you might just want to say, like, look, this is what we're using. Take it or leave it, you know. Um, and whatever your approach is for how to come to house rules, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's something that AD&D does phenomenally, second edition does phenomenally well, is with the kits and with the different campaign settings and with the different... Uh, you know, expansions of spells and magic items and shit like that. And then the, the, the far extreme of the um, character uh, options, uh, and, you know, series, the, the skills and powers books where you can build cla custom classes. You know, like there is an enormous amount of flexibility and customization in that thing. For my personal sensibilities, you know, um, house ruled uh, kits with most of the core rules and a couple of optional rules and then other stuff I've added in. That's my comfort level with the game, but it's really cool that you can make it whatever you really want for it. You can, um, you know, like the uh, narrative uh, um, meta currency that I use uh, in my game, the Astonishing Fortune, like that. that's not anything rules is written and, and some people would find that that uh, violates the, um, you know, the sort of tenets of uh, AD&D Second, but, or the old school but again, like it's the thing I, I really like about second is it uh, it's I, I feel like when I'm running that, I am less concerned with trying to recapture the authenticity of what play was like the way I do sometimes with other old school games. And what I'm doing instead is using those tools, 
those old school tools to make for an optimal gaming experience that I want today. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I've been enormously enjoying this game and I, I am curious and I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, how, whether this, this, um, whether this would do as well with a more story focused game, you know, um, because I don't know, there are other games that do a better job of certain elements of that kind of really story-based play. And certainly if I want a really heavily tactical, you know, combat as sport type game, um, Pathfinder 2 does a much better job of that. Um, the, the combat in Pathfinder 2 is enormously fun. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, like, I will be... Um, I'm looking forward to revisiting some other AD&D second uh shorter like story focused adventures and I'm, I am looking forward to seeing how that plays out but uh for for the type of sandbox campaign that I'm running right now uh with uh, AD&D second I man I'm not sure for a, a full fantasy game I would not pick any other game to run for a, a swords and sorcery kind of thing like I mean I definitely would uh ash is my go-to for um uh, for that uh but uh, for a, for full on fantasy where you want to have elves and dwarves and dragons and all the stuff that you see, man, a sandbox with AD&D second is pretty fucking awesome. So yeah, so that state of play for that campaign is really good. Now let's move on to astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. Okay. Uh, so the next update we need to do is for our astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea campaign um and this past session saw our heroes um meet with yet another power player where we last left our the heroes in that particular game was uh with their uh they having fought they uh, they had fought off an attack uh on their keep on iron fang keep from a an army uh that is led by members of the second sons faction uh, from our campaign. It's a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, uh, landless heirs to, or landless uh, children of a uh, nobles back on the continent on Hyperborea who have come to Thule to try and seek their fortunes and find some land. Um, the uh, the, the uh, fight was from previous uh, sessions was, uh, was over. Last session they had actually um, they had interrogated a, uh, a bunch of, or not a bunch of, they interrogated the one survivor and found that he actually wasn't, um, you know, that bad of a, of a guy. He was, a, he was a fairly honorable knight, uh, who just felt that, uh, the leader maybe that was taking, or the leader of the second sons, Arcadius Blasivarius, uh, may have been taking uh, poor advice from, uh, a, uh, a witch, uh, and, uh, perhaps some other sorcerers. So, uh, players sent the had last session or the previous session sent the guy back with uh, that uh, note. This session saw our heroes meet with a talking owl, an owl who appeared to our uh, monk, who fortunately could speak the language of animals. And uh, the um, owl told him that um, the witch of the woods wanted to meet with them uh, west of, uh, of of the keep. So the opposite side of the keep from where the enemy army, the Second Sons army, had uh, encamped. So our heroes uh, talked it over and decided that was worth checking out. So they they went and checked it out, and they uh, 
came to some kind of accord with the uh, the witch. Seems that the witch is uh, going along with the army for uh, different interests, and it seems like she may be um, interested in uh, you know changing uh, horses, as it were. So our heroes talked that over, and uh, the the task that she uh, effectively gave them was to clear out the. Um, the spirits there was uh, there's been since the first time they uh, encountered or, or stormed uh, Iron Fang Keep, uh, they have known that there has been um, that the keep itself has been haunted. Uh, there have been uh, ghosts that have been inhabiting the main level of the hall that seem to be seem to date back to uh, like well before the uh, uh, um, Thule uh, appeared in the uh, oceans of Hyperborea. So. The uh, yeah, the heroes did that, and then we had this massive uh, fight with uh, some wraiths. And uh, a, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, the game it's is very similar to AD&D First or Second Edition, with some tweaking to the rules to make it a little smoother. Um, and it, I mean, it's a it's a fucking terrific game. I, I really really enjoy running it. Um, but the energy drain is very much as lethal in this as it is in previous editions, as, uh, as old editions of uh, AD&D. So the, it's funny because in previous uh, sessions in the last little while, because I, um, I use the Astonishing Fortune, um, what is it, narrative meta-currency in both of my, my AD&D campaign, the Night Below campaign, and in Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. But I, I allow the players to use the... Um, the Astonishing Fortune for a lot less things in the AD&D campaign. Um, in Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea, they can use it to cancel a hit. They can use it to automatically make a save. They can use it to re-roll something. They can use it to edit the fiction. Like It's a lot more like a, um, a story game thing. And uh, the last little... I, I honestly have been thinking a little bit, like, mm, because I've seen them use it to, to negate stuff that really would put the characters in peril. And... I had thought uh, in the past, like, well, maybe this is just giving them too much... You know, it's making them feel too superpower. I, I, I've mentioned before in the podcast how, how uh, I feel that, um, you know, that the uh, characters in D&D uh, uh, 5th are, are a little too a little too durable, a little too, um, you know, uh, it's a little too much whack-a-mole in, uh, in combat. But... Um, this past session has dispelled any of those rumors or concerns I uh, I have. Like, it was fucking tense. Like the the players, um, gosh, like they spent every single uh, point of astonishing fortune they had in that fight, and there were uh, five players, I think, four four players, four or five players, and they I gave each of them a second point of astonishing fortune at uh, after we came back from our mid session break, so they had about eight points of Astonishing Fortune, and they used all of it to, to avoid energy drain and to avoid getting hit by these things because it was brutal. Um, and scary. I mean, like, it was the... I, I think that it was as terrifying as what un, fighting undead should be, you know? Like, knowing what the consequence is of, uh, of facing that kind of foe. I, uh, I definitely think that level drain, it, it, it's... Oh, man, is it sucked to get... Uh, be subject to level drain, um, but I won't take it out of those games uh, because I think that it 
yeah, it just it is just such a unique threat to very specific types of adversaries, you know, like uh, especially for undead, like uh, incorporeal undead and, and uh, whites. Uh, it, it just gives them a, a really distinct threat. Like there's a real peril for facing those things, and and uh, heroes know that. You know, I mean, I, I love using undead anyway, but adding in the threat of uh, of level drain as, as something that only the undead can do. It, it definitely gives them that that uh, you know, uh, it, it gives them a distinctive feel to it. So, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just I, I really, really, really enjoyed how that uh, that session played out. Uh, it was a very, very tense combat, but it was really good. We had one, uh, you know, one character ended up going down. They were undermanned as well, too, which was, uh, you know, as opposed to the uh, seven uh, players that we normally have, uh, seven or so, uh, they were down to four, I think. So it was, yeah, it was really a, a really enjoyable session. Uh, and we also had something happen in that session that I had not seen before in other, you know, it, so one of the th- reasons why I started, uh, uh, you know, started running this kind of sandbox thing is because uh, something I noticed in my buddy uh, Jason Hobbs' uh, games, his Kalmata games, which is that, you know, you learn snippets of the story of the of a setting by playing, you know, like you, you don't... Uh, generally get like big info dumps of this this is the history of the thing it's it's something that is solely parceled out while you're doing other things you know like the the crux or the the focus of the um the campaign isn't to just gain levels you know it the focus of the campaign is to to learn or, or not to gain levels the focus isn't to just on you know learn everything about the the world you're doing other things you know you're because it's a sandbox game you're going out there you have agency for what you want to do and how you want to do it so you're doing all those things and as you are doing them um you happen to be learning about some of the you know snippets of uh, of the world and that really kind of that's how i approached uh this particular campaign it's how i'm approaching our night below campaign but this one in particular because this is something i created from whole cloth um it has been. This was the first session where, like, the guys have have put pieced some things together before, but this really felt like the first time where they really kind of crystallized how much they knew about this particular place and how much they that in you know by virtue also informed them about what was going on in the the land as a whole, you know, or at least what what might you know what some of the the power players might be like suggested at what they are and yeah I've I've. Um, uh, I mean, sort of half joked, half referred to, like the my one shot sessions are designed like um, uh, one shots, you know, like like uh, short stories. Um, I, and I have a podcast uh, or a podcast, an episode of this podcast where I talk about using the rules from uh, short stories to uh, to uh, adapt your one shots. But for my ongoing campaigns, I do, you know, I do approach a a novelist, I think, kind of approach instead, where it is. A the long game is what I'm I'm playing I'm uh, paying for you know like I mean there are shorter term kind of uh, things that are going up and going down and, and whatnot uh, where there's the stories are, are you know in, introduced or uh, challenges or whatever are introduced um, dealt with and then overcome uh, and there are um, you know uh, there, there are um, uh, smaller 
uh, successes and achievements that the players are experiencing over the course of the overall story. But there's also a slow burn towards a big resolution. And maybe that's not even like that's not even like novelist approach. It's kind of like like a comic book approach, like like a Claremont style long term thing where there are you know stories that are that are building over time. But there, uh, while that's going on, there is a longer term uh, development that's that's uh, happening a longer uh you know uh story arc that is is developing and that's sort of the approach i had on this and i but i didn't want to like force it down people's throats i wanted it to be something that would evolve naturally over time that that something that would uh, be uncovered as the players you know interacted with the environment and they'd piece it together and then if they choose to get involved with that stuff that's fine um you know that that may there are some threats that will just come in and uh, face them, regardless of what they do. But you know, if uh, if they do, there's certain you know if they choose to engage with certain elements of the setting, uh, then things may happen earlier or later or in a different way. And I just, it was so fucking cool seeing them, you know, in that particular session, sit there and and piece together like, well, this is all we know, and to think of how far it's come from them starting with knowing nothing about the setting, nothing about the world, uh, and just being washed up on the shore. You know, we have, we're 29 sessions in right now. They've achieved a great deal over the course of uh, the, the play we've had. They've made enemies. They've, uh, <laughs> excuse me, they've defeated enemies. They've made allies. Um, and this was the, the when they sort of clicked everything together. And I, I can't wait to then throw open a whole new door. And I've, I've talked about how I'm, I'm really excited for sort of the next major sequence in this. I've got an idea that's going to throw the a whole new, um, you know, element of the campaign open to them. And uh, I, I just, I, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this campaign. It's It's been the, the gratification uh, of having a, you know, that, that um, slow boil kind of approach to it to just like let us enjoy the 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 campaign as it goes along live in the moment of each of the campaign you know each moment of the campaign whether it's a dungeon crawl or you know a side mission or whatever traveling across the land but also seeing this you know this bigger picture slowly coming together over time has been just so much fun not only to write but also to to bring out into play and like I feel and as a dm as well I really feel like I've learned an awful lot about how to how to structure, you know, a campaign and maintain not only player interest, but also my own interest and to uh, do it in such a way that it doesn't um, rely on any one character's story or any one character's arc. There are definitely arcs that are going on. Um, but yeah, it's just, I am I, having so much fun. And it was such a good, uh, fun session, like, you know, good uh, role-playing, um, excellent uh, development of the overall plot of the overall, uh, uh, story that's unfolding, and a uh, a really deadly and uh, thrilling you know fight right at the end too. So it's uh, yeah, just I mean I'm um, I'm enjoying that campaign and that game so much, and the game really does a, a you know a great job because it is um, because it's it's yeah, the the yeah, what what's the word I'm looking for because the insp- you know inspirational material is you know the for for the game itself is Robert E Howard is you know um the kind of um uh Clark Ashton Smith you know and and Lovecraftian stuff it it 
when I'm designing for that campaign and I'm thinking about that campaign, it is, it's all my favorite things to think about in like a a Conan uh, type campaign, but even more so because I can kind of make it all my own, you know, and, um, yeah, I just, boy, I'm really, really enjoy that game. Really enjoy the, uh, the players in that, in that game too. We've been playing together for 15 months now. Um, and you know, it's, it's one of those things that I just hope goes on forever. You know, it just, it is such a terrific campaign. I, I know that uh, Critical Roles celebrated their fifth year anniversary of all playing together uh, this past week too. And it got me thinking, I'm like, man, like if we can make it to five years with these characters, that's going to be fucking awesome. You know, um, we don't play uh, as often as we do for some of the other games, but when we do play, like it, it feels like every session is eventful and momentous and like we're we're doing something that's important and driving the story forward. So it's, uh, it's been pretty good. And you know, the rewards on that particular campaign have been quite good. I, I need to look at that for how to, uh, to model rewards in my night below campaign as well too, because the, uh, I think that the, the players don't feel like they're hurting for, for loot. Like there's definitely, you know, there would be a desire for certain characters to get better, you know, certain items or things like that. Uh, but I don't feel like, um, they're feeling starved of loot. Like, you know, I think our, my Starfinder players did. And like, sometimes my uh, Pathfinder players do, um, they, I mean, the Starfinder players, they have said that, but that, that's more a virtue of the, how the game is, is structured. Uh, they have said, um, and my Pathfinder players have not said that, but I I get the feeling that they may feel that way just because it's, um, I'm uh, terrible at, uh, at making sure I give out enough treasure. Um, but I'd like to do that uh, more so in, um, although they have been getting good items in, in uh, Night Below as well, too. They just have had difficulty affording the uh, identify spells <laughs> that are required. So, um, But anyway, yeah, so that that is um, the state of play for our Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea game is, is fantastic. I really, really enjoy that game, and uh, I look forward to, oh, I, I just, I can't wait for this next, um, the next sort of like, um, uh, arc of the campaign to, to start. It's going to be pretty awesome. So that's the state of that one. Let's move on to masks and cult. Okay. Talk about a lot happening in a short time. So since, uh, I began recording this uh, episode, we've had, uh, geez, the, um, a state of emergency declared in my, uh, town of, uh, Calgary and the, uh, yeah, the, this is, at the time of recording, the full coronavirus kind of isolation slash quarantine stuff is, is in full effect. So I've been home uh, for the last couple of days uh, working from home, and um, as a result, I'm not in the Jeep very often, so I don't uh, get an opportunity to, to record, because we're all kind of living on top of each other right now. Um, but um, I guess what I'll do is I'll, I'll uh, I'm going to give a quick um, recap of the other uh, uh, topics I was going to talk on here or speak about, uh, in particular, the um, so, uh, the, the other two sessions that we ran over the weekend, over the past weekend, were Masks, um, uh, the new generation, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game that has people playing as teenage superheroes, and Cult Divinity Lost uh, using the Dracula dossier uh, framework or adventures as... Uh, as a setup for the campaign, and um, both of them were really, really good. It, it feels like a hundred years ago at this point, but uh, both of them were were really great sessions. My son, in particular, 
Uh, it was myself, my son, and then uh, my buddy Steve. Um, and I'm not sure if Steve really enjoyed the uh, the game quite as much. Um, I think he had a hard time kind of uh, grasping how the game was to be played. But uh, my son just loved it, and uh, to the point where we actually he gave we had a bit of a a debrief afterwards as we do with every time we play a game and he just kept going on and on and on about all the different things he loved about it so um we definitely had a, a winner and he actually pointed out uh, as well that he felt that it would be a good game to introduce people who are new to uh you know new to role-playing games as well too just because he felt that it was so um narrative and so uh focused on uh, story you know as opposed to having to learn a bunch of rules uh for it so it went really well. I, I also made use of the... Uh, I picked up the Villains, or Deck of Villainy, I think it's called. It's one of the supplements they've got that has a bunch of pictures of um, villains on it and some loose rules on them and a, and a little bit of uh, background, but that was sufficient. A cool illustration, cool idea what their abilities are. That was sufficient for us to be able to build a, um, you know, some uh, nemeses for the guys, as well as uh, a, a really good... Uh, session where they they got a chance to to face this rock-like monster while they were kind of doing their thing and it was uh it was good you know like like a lot of these uh, powered by the apocalypse games is, i think if, if you're coming from a traditional game background it does require a little bit of uh time to acclimatize yourself to kind of how the game is played and how you think about the uh the mechanics and such uh, which was that we found a little a little bit uh, to be the case uh, certainly a little more for uh, a little more so for Steve I think than the others because uh, Steve had, I don't think had played a uh, power by the apocalypse game yet so it was just a little bit of a shift but once you make that shift though I mean it, it was really pretty great uh, and then our session of the uh, Dracula dossier session using cult divinity loss that was was also really really good um, it was our first time. A second time uh, using that uh, that system with that particular uh, setting, and uh, I, I think it went really well. Uh, we had, um, yeah, we had uh, the um, the characters uh, deal with a. Let's see here. Uh, they got themselves a little closer to the um, what do you call it? It's a little closer to. Uh, their destination, which is uh, Ternova, a uh, place in uh, Bulgaria. And that was pretty good. And then they uh, they had a fight on a train as well, too, which was kind of cool. And, yeah, it was, I mean... Misrecognition. Oop, my uh, voice, whatever, is going off. Oop. <laughs> Oh, there's some serious uh, stones here. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to navigate around these incredible ruts in this <laughs> parking lot. So, um, yeah, I mean, it went. Uh, that second one went much smoother than our first uh, session did, which was pretty good. Uh, we are, um, yeah, we're going to carry on with uh, with this campaign, with this uh, game for the foreseeable future. Um, and I, 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 at least until until this adventure is finished. And let's see. So what are my thoughts on, on cult so far? So cult itself is a, uh, I, I really, really enjoyed how it played. Uh, and I, I think that, um, 
how I felt about it after the session was a little different from how I feel right now, only because I've actually, um, I've launched another very, uh, which would probably be a short uh, campaign for the duration of uh, the quarantine, but I've, I've uh, started up a um, play-by-post game for, for sort of those of us who are locked up in uh, quarantine using uh, City of Mists. Uh, it's a game I've mentioned before, published by Son of Oak Studios, and it's it's very much a kind of middle ground between Powered by the Apocalypse games and Fate games, and it has some traditional game elements in it as well too, but it is, um, it's I, I really, really enjoy the game. And what I've done is I've set up a, uh, a campaign. Instead of using the City of Mist game as written, which, I mean, why would you ever do that? I decided to uh, set it in... 1940, uh, early 1940, for uh, the DC universe. So I'm using some bunch of uh, DC uh, heroes. Uh, they're all pre-gens. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm, players aren't necessarily getting a huge amount of freedom to create their characters, but I will let them develop their characters as we uh, as we go along if we get to that point. And the yeah, I mean, like the the game itself. Uh, I, I've now that I've, I've been prepping for City of Mist and reading it again, it reminds me there's elements in that that I think I like better than in Cult, uh, particularly uh, sort of how contested things work. You know, um, in uh, City of Mist, there are things like tags or statuses or basically like things in the world. It's, it's situational modifiers that are either continuing or just instantial that uh, are called tags. Uh, or statuses that can provide modifiers that can either penalize or augment your dice rolls. And City of Mist has a spectrum of statuses as well that a lot of the other Powered by the Apocalypse games do not. Like when your character gets affected by a status, I believe you can take up to a status 5 effect before you are flat, like you're incapacitated in some capacity. And statuses run the... It's everything that is affecting your character. It could be that you are financially burdened, it could be that you are, you know, injured, it could be that you are mind-controlled, it could be that you are subject to a curse, I mean, it, it could be that you are um, blinded, you know, I mean, like, it's it, anything that, uh, it could be that you're convinced, you know, or you're under the scrutiny of someone. It's something that just becomes a uh, an ongoing part of your character, uh, or a part of the scene, depending on, on where the, what the tag or the status is associated with. And I, I just I really love it. Like it's a very elegant and uh, and streamlined way of modeling that kind of stuff, um, where you know modeling effects I guess in the game. And this is I've mentioned to uh, some folks in the Discord that I've, it reminds me in many ways of uh, uh, the hero system in that sense. And is that it's because it's so effects driven that uh, you know you it's a, the the real meat of the game comes from uh, describing what's going on as opposed to. Uh, you know, um, as opposed to uh, having to give specific game mechanics to uh, to absolutely everything, and I mean, Hero does give game mechanics to absolutely everything, <laughs> but you know, I mean, to a degree, uh, and certainly for the earlier editions, it allows a certain level of abstraction where you know there's not like burning, you know, or fire as a result in uh, in Hero. It, it's uh, you know, persisting or something like that, where you're at the the flavor of the effect is is the same. So that's why I feel City of Mist is is, um, is similar to that way. And there's a neat way of of staging up where, you know, like if you take a uh, level two um, or a um, yeah power level two uh, status, and 
then you are tagged with a power level one status that will not automatically make it level three. It'll, it'll inch it towards it, but it won't automatically make it. Whereas if a two does, it will bump it right up to three. And then if at three you're tagged with a lower level thing, it potentially can bump you up, but it's not, you know, flat out. A higher level effect automatically just replaces the lower level effects. And that just, um, it gives you, when you know that's sort of the framework for how you're resolving all tasks and how you're modeling everything going on in the world, it gives you a great deal of flexibility um, while still also providing you an actual solid rules basis. And I don't, um, a cult doesn't have that. A cult doesn't have the, uh, that quite that level of, um, I guess, sophistication in its, uh, in modeling its like effects or, you know, uh, how much uh, of one thing you can take before you are rendered uh, incapable or unable to participate anymore. That's because you're burdened by financial debt, I guess, or, because you're, I don't know, stressed out or because whatever. Um, a cult adopts what a lot of Power by the Apocalypse games do, which is you have like four minor things and you take one more big effect and you're out. I know uh, Monster of the Week does something different uh, than that, but um, yeah, and I mean, uh, I, they are different games, obviously, and I mean, I wouldn't use uh, City of Mist to, to run a... Uh, Dracula Dossier campaign because I think it's it's a little too loose. I do like the the crunch, if you will, that does come with character creation in a cult. But yeah, it was a good session. Like I, I don't know if the guys are necessarily sold on it. I, I don't. I go, I, I did uh, rewatch it afterwards, and I was talking to them, and they weren't. Uh, I mean, some more so than others were really sold on what, um, especially for the combat stuff. Um, I you know for like for myself, I I, I felt combat was was fun and exciting and whatnot too and i think that the level of abstraction that happens in that game may not be to some people's taste because they do like crunchier games um but you know i mean i i think that the the ultimately i i don't want you know um that especially for that campaign for that campaign combat is not um is not the focus combat should be exciting and fast and have you know i like i like the the uh, speed with which it can be adapted you know, I like that quite a bit. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of high-octane kind of action that I want from, from this particular game. And if you did adopt a system that had a more crunchy, like, say you took the the, bear, the bones of Pathfinder 2, which is a really phenomenal tactical game, and you laid that onto that kind of game, you would just end up spending so much more time with the combat, uh, not only... Like for the characters deciding on what they would be optimized with and suboptimal with, and and the tactics they'd have and whatever else, but also playing it out at the table. So it's that it's that you know um, you know razor's edge you dance on where you're figuring out how complex you can make your different mechanics in order to um, to make the um, what do you call it uh, the game uh, the gameplay satisfying. But yeah, it's an you know I. Um, I, I'm enjoying the the gameplay enormously, and and now that the characters just had uh, their first uh, advancement. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how they uh, what what decisions they make with respect to that. They had said at the last uh, session that they were going to just snag uh, some flat just mechanical bonuses, uh, but I'm hoping that they've uh, taken time to to look and see what other things they can they can get because there are some really neat options and the way advantages work in that game is how you get access to different abilities so and they have been making really good use of their different abilities as well too which is pretty great yeah, pretty great we also kind of all collectively had a realization playing that game too that like the way to think of that game 
uh, and those types of games is not a matter of the binary success fail the way that other games do. But because the game is, uh, it incorporates the, like one, one of your more most common results is going to be um, success, but you're going to, you know, so there's going to be some either way that you didn't quite succeed the full way, but you, actually that's not even true. It's more that you got a complication that came with it. Uh, unless it's defending. Defending then it's just, you know, you, you've failed and you took some damage and whatever. Um, but the, um, it was it was neat thinking about like, well, that's not what the game is about. The game isn't about flat out success or flat out failure. The game is always about, you know, what uh, interesting things are happening in the game. And that's, I think, where the adage of playing to see what happens really uh, materializes in those games is, is that, you know, you, you got to uh, accept that your characters, the free and clear uh, successes that you see in a lot of other games, uh, they're just not, that's not what the game is is designed to emulate. It emulates those middle grounds where, you know, um, your character can succeed at stuff, but, you know, there's often going to be some kind of niggling thing. And I mean, in uh, that, that uh, complicates matters. And in uh, Fantasy Flight, that's how, uh, that's manifest in Fantasy Flight Star Wars and Fantasy Flight uh, Genesis games. Uh, the way that that's manifested is through the, the um, threats and despairs. In this case, it's just, it is a, you know, um, it is a different way of, uh, and more common way of, of that type of complication uh, uh, manifesting. And I did like tossing a lot of the results to the players because they were really quite eager to jump in with suggestions for how those suboptimal results or the, you know, the negative uh, consequences or negative uh, externalities that come with middling dice rolls, uh, where that comes in. So it was good. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing more of that. It's It says a lot that for every single one of those uh, sessions, and again, it feels like 100 years ago now, but for every single one of those sessions, I uh, I, I came away wanting to play more immediately. You know, I wanted to keep playing AD&D. I wanted to keep playing Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers Hyperborea. I wanted to keep playing Masks, and I wanted to keep playing Cult. You know, so, um, so that was pretty good. Um, maybe I'll end that section here, and then I'll... Well, you know what? Let's just finish talking about the... Uh, this other game. So I, I mentioned at the outset that I, I might um, have some suggestions for how to approach um, gameplay during the uh, kind of the, the quarantine. And since I last mentioned, uh, since I mentioned that at the outset, there's been just a shit ton of really great advice for how to do that, you know, for how to approach uh, online gaming. So I don't, I'm not sure that I, uh, I'm going to add more, uh, more to that here. I don't, I don't have much more to add to that, to be honest. Um, but I will say is that, you know, what I ended up doing for, for my community is to set up a uh, play-by-post game. And it was I didn't quite know how many people would want be, to, be, to be playing in it and how active we'd be. But it's uh, first day of it today. I, I sent out the characters yet last night or posted them last night. I said, hey, here you go. You know, uh, let me know if you guys want to play. I had four players by the morning. And by the afternoon, we'd already had our first round of kind of like posts and responses and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's I'm... I'm looking forward. I, I, what I chose to do is to pick a um, a Powered by the Apocalypse or story game as opposed to a traditional game because I didn't want to get bogged down in a lot of dice rolls where we're just posting dice rolls back and forth. I wanted stuff to sort of move in a faster, broader strokes pace. Uh, and uh, and also, I mean, I, like the mystery element of this particular game um, where City of Mist is all about, so, you know, solving mysteries and uncovering conspiracies and stuff like that and that's exactly what i'm doing with this particular game as well is uh, i've set up a pretty uh, some smaller mysteries and then some bigger you know conspiracies 
to uh, for the players to deal with so or to uncover and um yeah we'll see how you know how far things go uh, right now we've got some really good uh, interaction on the on the channel and it, i mean um we'll see what uh, everyone kind of thinks about the that particular game it's an enormous amount of work i will say uh to at least to, it was to set it up and it's not uh it's not too too bad going forward right now but um i i'm fairly certain it's not something i want to continue doing past the uh, uh the quarantine only because it just i don't have time to to be posting on this kind of thing it's a nice um it's a nice way to sort of interact with the uh the community but i certainly much prefer playing in person and i mean i am fortunate to be able to make the time so even if you figure like if there's uh, f- like three hours a week that I'm spending uh, writing and posting and whatnot on this stuff, I can find three hours to run a game on online. So um, I don't get quite as much content, I don't think, as as you do with the typing because it is pretty quick. Like the, the, you're you're forced to sort of consider what you um, you know what's happening in sort of a condensed way to sort of set up what's what you've posted so that the next person can respond with something more substantive than yes or no. Um, so that's interesting because we're, we're certainly, it feels like we're spending, we're moving a little faster through stuff, but, but I don't know. Actually, I'm not even sure that's true actually, because we're spending a a fair bit of time right now, um, on like, uh, role-playing, uh, stuff, which I mean, to be honest, is how I'd probably play that game at the table anyway. So I guess we're playing exactly as I expected. So, so anyway, that's what we're, what I'm doing, uh, I know that uh, there are other uh, friends on the channel who are also uh, starting to run more online games during the day just to get people, uh, you know, people occupied. Uh, it's only been at the time of recording, I've been uh, locked in the house for two days now and already like it, it's a combination of having diff- like difficulty focusing on work uh, and also a little bit of stir craziness. The weather's not been great the last little while too, so... Um, but fortunately tonight I got my first, uh, session of the week for AD&D and then, uh, later tonight I can focus more on the, uh, play by post game, which is great. You know what? Like the guys have already just like dove in, uh, right into the playing these characters and the characters I picked for it were intentionally one character is someone that probably people will know, but for the most part, what I chose to do is pick real D listers, you know, um, characters that, that don't get a lot of, there's not a, a zeitgeist idea of who these characters are. So that, partly because, I mean, I, I, they're, they're coming in with these characters fresh, you know, in their mind. They're not preconceiving who Batman is or who Superman is or whatever. Um, and also partly because, I mean, I, I love, I love, love, love James Robinson's work on Golden Age and on Starman. And those game, those are things, actually, and to be honest, Roy Thomas's work on All-Star Squadron. And those are games that showed me that, you can love every character, you know, you can love the most obscure character, uh, like the Red Bee, uh, and you can love Superman, you can love Batman, you know, and uh, what we're doing in this is really trying to, City of Mist does a really terrific job of gamifying all the interesting bits of every character, you know, um, you focus on the things that, that are important for the story, as opposed to just flat mechanics on the table, and I used my old uh, DC Heroes, um, uh, World at War thing. It's a it's a World War II supplement with the All Star Squadron and like Sergeant Rock and shit like that in it. And I just picked a bunch of uh, you know heroes that had relatively modest abilities as well too, like no Green Lanterns, uh, and also I thought were again D listers who could be really interesting to explore. So the four heroes that we're starting with 
our uh, our man uh, Rex Tyler, who uh, has you know takes the um, the drug or vitamin Miraclo and then gains super strength and vulnerability and super speed for a brief period for a one hour. Um, I picked uh, Hawkman Carter Hall Hawkman with and really playing up the sort of reincarnated. Um, um, what do you call it? A uh, guy, and he's an archaeologist too. Like uh, Hawkman, uh, the Golden Age Hawkman is very much a pulp hero, more so, or feels like more of a pulp hero than he does a superhero, because he's a you know archaeologist, rich person who happened to also discover that he's a reincarnated soul of this Egyptian prince and gained this you know uh, set of flying wings, and that's been retroactively incorporated into the sort of modern day. Hawkman, but you know, for a long time, uh, that Hawkman, the modern day Hawkman from about the uh, 60s, mid 60s up until about um, the late 90s, um, is uh, Hawkman was a space cop, you know, uh, the modern day Hawkman was a space cop. So uh, it's cool to, to bring that character back to his sort of pulpy roots, um, free of the sort of space, you know, stuff that that's been tied in with that character since. Uh, partly because of a really excellent episode of Justice League Unlimited and partly because of the way that uh, Jeff Johns and uh, James Robinson have developed that character in the comics and other writers as well, too. I don't want to shortchange other writers. But, um, so Hawkman, but in this very pulpiest kind of form. Um, Manhunter, Dan Richards, uh, or Donald, quote, Dan, end quote, Richards. Manhunter, this guy wears like a blue leotard and uses a, a, a pet dog named Thor the Wonder Dog to fight crime. Um, I read a Secret Origins issue by, um, I can't remember who wrote it. It might have been Steve Englehart, actually. And uh, I can't remember who the artist is. I think it's Tom Mandrake, maybe. And I just totally fell in love with all of the Manhunter characters. And he, there's just, like, to be honest, there's nothing interesting about this character. He's a cop who, you know, became a superhero because his... He was he graduated the bottom of the of the police academy, and then his buddy who graduated at the top of the police academy. And the reason he graduated at the bottom is because he was busy compiling files on cops. He was trying to be a cop before he got out of the academy. Uh, not the cops on on criminals. So he graduated at the bottom, but then his buddy got framed uh, for something that he didn't do. So he became manhunter to go and chase, you know, clear his buddy's name. He did that, and now he's a cop who's also a uh, um, uh, superhero in the in the off time. And I. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, the, I love the idea of um, uh, trying to take a character like that and just make it really, really interesting and unique. And yeah, and so we, we've got that one character. And then the last one is Sargon the Sorcerer, a stage magician who uses a ruby of life to actually do magic as well. So he's kind of like Zatara or kind of like um, Mandrake the Magnificent, uh, where he is a stage magician who also happens to be able to cast real magic. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like his weirdo shtick too. He, he looks like a tuxedo wearing stage magician with a big red cloak who wears, he's a white guy who wears a yellow turban with a big red ruby in the middle of it. And it's just such a bonkers character. And, um, and a I mean, certainly more than a little cultural appropriation there, but it fits with the sort of stage magician, trope of the vaudeville era and that's what the character is sort of a callback to so um so yeah so we've got like a mystic we've got a super strong character we've got kind of a weird archaeologist you know pulp adventure character and we've got a street level pulp avenger so i think we got a good mix we're sort of hitting all the different um sort of uh early superhero tropes there and yeah it's been uh, it's been really really cool i'm uh 
I'm wind here. F oh, actually, that's not true. I, maybe at the time of recording, I may have had the first post from uh, the guy playing um, Our Man. Uh, but uh, we've been seeing report posts from everybody, and I I'm really excited to see the guys dig into this mystery. It and it'll be testing out a theory of mine that, uh, you know, uh, of potentially involving more folks in the kind of fan base or the viewer base, at least, uh, of the channel to involve them in s some of the campaigns where they can do some like problem solving or, you know, analysis clues or things like that. Like try and give the, the um, give you more to, to think about away from the episodes than just, you know, what's happening in the episodes. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see how this pans out. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, regardless, I'm going to learn some great lessons and hopefully we're going to have some really good stories. We certainly had some really terrific role playing already. So anyway, so that is um, the state of play with masks, cult and CD of masks. Okay, so I guess the last thing I'll uh, maybe talk about is just, uh, you know, how uh, how nicely it seems as if the gaming community has kind of come together um, at this kind of point. I mean, we're all sort of, uh, we're, we're not shut-ins <laughs> necessarily, but I mean, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a strange um, combination of being both a indoor, you know, I guess, sort to... Uh, to be engaging in, in these games, but also to be, you know, um, I, I can't think of a more uh, in, intentionally collaborative group activity like uh, gaming. You know, uh, we all come together to uh, tell a story, and it's been really cool seeing how much that has, um, people have found those opportunities or seem to have found those opportunities to carry that on, you know, um, as much as there is obviously some bad stuff that comes from uh, the internet sometimes, um, the comment section of some videos, uh, more so than others sometimes, but seeing, you know, that Roll20 was having to rework their servers in order to take the new load of players that were jumping onto that to, uh, you know, in order to, uh, to continue playing when their face-to-face -face groups couldn't meet as a result of the, uh, of the, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, um, COVID-19 crisis, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty heartening, you know, and, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I would suggest if anyone is making that transition, um, I think it's easy to get caught up in all the different bells and whistles that are available for the different, um, providers, the different ways you can get it. I mean, and I, I think that the, the trick is, is, you know, like just pick a horse and ride it and take advantage of the things it has available to you and the, you know, and just don't worry if it doesn't have all the features of all the things. The features that you will get from any, if you're not, if you're coming to a tabletop or to, to a digital platform from anywhere, the advantages that it has over traditional play, just setting aside, uh, you know, any other things of being able to actually do it during the pandemic, um, the, the way that the, um, the games or the, uh, platforms allow you to drag and drop, uh, maps and tokens without any hassle is already, uh, so much faster and better, I think, than in-person play. There's no miniatures that are getting knocked over. There's, you know, you, you're, uh, selection of miniatures and, and maps are as vast as your Google image searches will allow you. So, you know, it's, um, uh, that alone, 
even if all you're doing is using it to roll dice and uh, you know do track everything else manually that's a thing to really bear in mind and like if you're going to use the you know dynamic lighting feature in certain of the platforms that's cool but you know don't worry yourself too too much about taking advantage of everything you know you don't need to swallow a meal in one bite you can just start off by taking advantage of what it offers you which is an opportunity to play at the distance and then explore the things that are uh, better in it than in um, for whatever platform you choose from um, tabletop play like uh, dynamic lighting dynamic lighting and the the way that you uh, reveal or if, if it's uh, fog of war the way that you reveal the map and whatnot in um, in at least in roll 20 uh, you know is is certainly superior to uh, the way it works in uh, tabletop play you know sitting and drawing the, the stupid map at least this is a that's a maybe a subjective call but for myself I find it much better it's much more interesting and um, I'm much e- easier to flip between maps and things like that. Like it's just, it's uh, I find it a, a great deal more convenient than uh, than setting up in in person. And there is a different dynamic, obviously, of uh, playing in person. But you know, um, rather than lamenting what you're not able to do and the problems that you're going to have with getting yourself acclimatized to the new platform and whatnot, just dive in and you know ag- ag- acknowledge, especially in, in the in during the uh, crisis as well too. It's just going to hurt your gaming experience if you're focusing on what it doesn't do. There's something that that recruiters will tell you, you know, and that's something called the um, uh, the uh, reverse honeymoon. And what it is is when you start a new job, and then what you focus on is all the things that the new job does not have that your last one did, rather than focusing on all the good things about the new job that the other one didn't have. You know, um, I've gone through this at one of my law, not the current law job, but I mean, at previous jobs. And uh, it's something I think that's easy to, to do. It's just, it's, especially if you're forced into the circumstance. I've, knock wood, fortunately never been terminated um, from a position. But uh, I mean, the if you're adding in the, the, the current circumstance where you're forced to make the change to uh, a digital platform, you're already going to be upset about the, the little inconveniences that prevent you from just doing the thing you want to do, which is gaming. So... I think just go into it accepting that there's going to be hiccups, there's going to be stumbles with it, but just jump in. You know, don't use everything yet. You can learn it as you go. And, you know, you're, you're, yeah, even if your game experience at first is going to be suboptimal, I think you'll find a lot of ways where there are things that it will do, you know, that the uh, previous way you game did not. Uh, even if there's also going to be things that it cannot do that you like the camaraderie of being in person. Um, that uh, you do do get in in person so that's uh that's my two cents on that it's just you know pick a platform dive in and then just you know be happy with what it's got and what the other ones don't i, I saw quite a bit of talk on uh, the discord channel uh about all the different particular you know minute differences between the um the different things and all i kept thinking is just like you know that that's time you could be spent running games you know uh, just pick something jump into it and that's fine there's every platform is going to have advantages everyone's going to have disadvantages you just you know pick something um uh, if price is a point then that that should help you you know uh decide on, on what thing is right for you and we don't know how long this is going to last but it's not going to last forever so, you know, if, if uh, you don't want to make the transition or the financial investment to, uh, to go long-term, just use that to guide your, your decision-making process, you know, as to whether you want to um, buy a, a full package or a monthly thing or not pay at all, you know, because there's certainly uh, some uh, tabletop things that, that will allow you to do that for free. A roll 20 and its basic uh, settings is, does not cost you anything. Uh, so, 
Anyway, I've been talking for quite a while now. Um, I think what I'll do is call this an episode here. So um, for those listening at home, uh, I hope you are healthy uh, and you are secure and you are finding ways to keep yourself occupied uh, during this uh, crisis. Uh, because of the, uh, the containment or the uh, quarantine, I, I'm currently uh, forced to work from home and I am for the foreseeable future, which is at least two weeks. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm going to keep recording episodes uh, when I uh, get a chance to do that. So you can expect, I've been getting a pretty good run of doing weekly episodes for the last little while. I'm going to try and keep that up. If during the uh, quarantine you have any topics you want me to talk on as well, too, you're, you're particularly interested in, uh, then please don't hesitate to, uh, you know, or tell me what you're doing, you know, what uh, what, what you're doing to get through the, the quarantine or the, the current crisis. Uh, let me know. Uh, you can shoot me a voicemail at uh, Anchor. You can reach me on uh, by email. My email is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can reach me. By uh, on Twitter, my Twitter is dun- handle is Dungeon Musings, uh, and uh, last but not least, if you go to any of the recent videos on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, you can find links to the Dungeon Musings Discord server, where you can find not only that play-by-post game that I mentioned, but also a bunch of really great players um, and a bunch of channels dedicated to all the different games I run, as well as games that other people run, and then uh, assorted game discussion set up for streaming. Uh, there's a bunch of cool channels that are on there right now, so feel free to join us and join the conversation over on the Dungeon Musings Discord server. But in closing, I will say again, I hope uh, this finds you healthy. I hope this finds you well. Um, and I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that this crisis uh, is, is not too disruptive of your, uh, of your life otherwise. I know that the, the financial impact of this is something we're not going to really know for a little while. And uh, I know that's a particular stressor, but I hope you are finding time to, at least if those are uh, stressors for you, that you're having an opportunity to roll some dice, have some fun with some friends, and um, yeah. Uh, kill some pretend monsters. So until I speak to you again, uh, thank you so much for listening and happy gaming.